0: Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Turn the Page. Uh, I'm Jen. I'm here today with a fabulous co-host. Would you like to introduce yourself? I don't
1: know how fabulous I am, but my name is Jessica, and I've and I've only had coffee this morning, by the way, I, I and a lot of sugar. So uh, if you're if you're questioning why I'm f- sounding bonkers, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Good Context, excellent, and we're here with a really fantastic author of a book that
0: we just both are absolutely mad for. Could I please ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please?
2: Uh, sure. My name is James Frankie Thomas, and I am the author of a novel called Idle Wild.
0: Oh, it's yeah. so, so good. And the premise, like just when, um you know, the book kind of landed in my inbox and I was hooked immediately by this premise. So but before we get into it, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to this book. Um, Like, how did you get into writing and like sort of how like where did this project come from?
2: Oh, sure. Oh, my gosh. Well. Uh, this project was a really long time in the works. I was trying to make a go of it as a writer, as a fiction writer, for most of my 20s while doing other jobs, but I was always trying to get published. It's so hard. And then, uh, in 2017, when I turned 30, I got a big break. I got into the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which was, oh my god, such a life-changing thing. I actually applied to, like, seven MFA programs, but I got rejected from all of them except Iowa. Uh, which was the opposite of what I thought would happen. And all the others were in my home area of New York, and Iowa was just like the why not one. But instead, I had to disrupt my whole life and spend two years uh, in a very remote place where I had never been before. Uh, But thank God, because the Iowa Writers Workshop is just such an amazing place to be alone with your thoughts. And... um, they just they pay you to sit alone with your thoughts and do pretty much nothing for two years. So it's the best chance you're ever going to get to do like your life's work or to pursue your lifelong dream. In the months leading up to me leaving for Iowa, I kept thinking, like, what should I work on while I'm there? What you know, I guess I should write a novel. What should my novel be about? and as my mind circled around it i started thinking about high school and how i had a very unusual high school experience at a very small private quaker school in uh downtown manhattan uh in the years after 9 11. and uh i was a theater kid and it was it was just a really intense time for me it was a happy memory and i kept thinking like there's a story here and it's such a big story that i've never written about it before but if I had two years just alone by myself to like think about this time in my life, I bet I could get a really good novel out of it. Like, I know there's a novel in here. So I arrived in Iowa, and I immediately started writing this uh, this Quaker 9-11 private school New York novel. And uh, actually, what happened was, uh, at the end of my first year at Iowa, I workshopped a very early draft of it. It was unfinished. It was only about 200 pages long, this draft. It was like maybe a quarter or a third of the novel. And I workshopped it in my novel workshop. Uh, Paul Harding, this wonderful teacher and Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, author of Tinkers, he was the uh, the instructor, the professor of this workshop. So he led the discussion of my unfinished draft of Idlewild and uh, you are not allowed to talk in your own workshop. So I just had to sit there and listen to Paul Harding and my classmates talk about my book in front of me. And what they all kept saying was, they said, it's a really strange choice uh, you've made in, in your manuscript is to make one of the two main characters a trans man, but not make this explicit. And we think you're being too coy about it. You're hiding this fact, but it's so obvious from page one that there's really no point artificially withholding something so obvious. You should just make it clear from page one. And I wasn't allowed to say anything. So I just sat there with a gigantic exclamation point over my head, I'm sure is what I looked like, because I had not meant to do that at all. It was not even a little bit on my radar that one of the two main characters could be trans and I was upset and mad and confused and I was like how is it possible that everyone read it wrong in the exact same way like what are the odds of that uh so uh (laughs) But uh, before long, I uh, began to think about that critique more seriously and it took a few more years, but the longer I worked on the book, the more I came to realize that the reason that one of the two main characters appeared to be trans was that I am myself actually trans. And so the process of writing the book was the process of coming out as trans first to myself and then to the rest of the world. And thank God, Uh, I realized that because I think the book came out a lot better now that I know that and can write about it explicitly. Uh, But that is the story of how it got written. It took five years to write and we are now six years out from when I started to work on it. So it's been quite a journey.
0: That is a phenomenal story. And it's just Gosh, I have so many questions. Um, but before we get into them, just the immediate, uh, the context of the story really hit me very hard. Um, I was a, a freshman at NYU uh, when when 9-11 happened. And so I was in the middle of that milieu, too. And just sort of like that emotional context and all the pop culture references all just really came together in a way that was like, wow, this is very much my teen years. Um Yeah. So if you could talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, what it was like to um, mine your own experience in that way and to really learn something very important about yourself in the process like that is like absolutely fascinating. (laughs) I'm so glad
2: that, I really am glad to hear that the evocation of the period worked well for you because I took that very seriously. It always bothers me when I read novels that are set in a different time and I can see the anachronisms. It bothers me on TV, too. Like, I think I have a fairly well-attuned ear for anachronism. So, like, when a character on Mad Men would say, I'm in a really good place right now, that would bother me. That sort of thing, you know? Um... But that being said, I don't, like, I can't just jump into that 2002 mindset. I really had to re-familiarize myself with how we talked back then. So uh, in that sense, I really approached the novel like historical fiction. I was incredibly careful. Okay, now that I say that, I'm sure someone is going to write in and say they found an anachronism. But uh, I did my absolute very best to... Avoid anachronisms and to make sure that every single line of dialogue was period accurate. And if I wasn't sure, I had systems for uh, checking whether we were saying certain phrases yet in 2002, 2003. One of my favorite research methods was um, you know, you know this because you're librarians. When you do a Google search, you can customize the results to be only from a certain time period. And uh, luckily, the internet was big enough in 2002 and 2003 that I could customize my results to be to to end with 2003. So I would do the Google set. I would Google the phrase I was searching for. I think collective action was a phrase I searched at one point because I thought like, were we saying collective action yet, or did that enter our vocabularies during the late the later labor movements of the 2020s? Uh, So I would Google the phrase collective action, and it wasn't enough to see if it came up in Google results from before 2003. I wanted to see how often it came up in Google results and in what context it came up in Google results. And if I scrolled and I found that people just like weren't saying that phrase very much, I thought "Uh, I got to rephrase this. I don't I don't think we would have said that in 2002. Uh, So that was one way I one way I situated myself in time as I was writing. I am also incredibly fortunate that I was a committed diarist in uh, in high school, especially, so I'm actually two years younger than the characters in my novel. So in 2002 and 2003, I was a sophomore in high school while my characters are seniors, but I kept a really detailed diary in 2002 and 2003. And it was a little embarrassing to go back and reread, obviously, but what I was mostly doing in searching through it Partly I was uh, pulling up, you know, situations that I could fictionalize the opening scene, which is a description of the one year anniversary of 9-11 in the high school, is largely taken from a diary entry. But more than that, I was looking for slang. I was looking for speech patterns. I was looking for
1: attitudes and
2: how we talked about things. There's one entry that I was so glad to find again because it answered a question I have been asking myself for years, which is what did kids do to pass the time before they had phones? Like I literally don't remember what I used to do before I had a phone to look at. And I found an entry where I describe hanging out with some classmates and uh, in the diary I wrote. And uh, we spent a lot of time reading aloud the warning label on a bucket and making fun of it. Uh, that did not make it into the novel, but uh, that sort of thing was really helpful in uh, getting me to re-inhabit the mindset of it's 2002. We have AIM, we have the internet, but the internet is a place you go on. You go on the computer. It's a different place, and really only nerds spend a lot of time in that place, and the rest of us are just uh, grounded in physical reality without our phones. It was it was challenging. I actually uh, it was so challenging that my next fictional project that I want to start on, I am deciding not to have any characters be of my generation because, like, I'm sick of going back to that place. I don't want any of my characters to use those slang terms anymore. I'm sick of researching the early 2000s. I have gotten that out of my system.
1: So I... real. So the characters, let's talk about them. Because I really... um life reading them and I felt that you did you know I'm um about I so I 9-11 happened my first six months out of college um and actually I was working at Borders um which is where I met Jen believe it or not um but not at the same time I think like you I don't remember when Jen started working at my Borders but I think it was I don't know Jen when when did we meet was it I came in for my interview December,
0: 2002. So like a very.
1: Yeah. So that's about, so yeah, that was, uh, I think I like had left her from that time. But um, the reason I mentioned Borders is because that's where I was when 9-11 happened. Um, I was working in the cafe at Borders. And um, I remember um, Peggy Ziernan, who was both, uh, it's Ziernan, correct? That's how she pronounces her last name? Ziernan? Zirin, sorry. Okay, so I remember Peggy Zirin, who um, was our um, manager at the time. She was manager for both myself and Jen. We know her very well. Um, She was the one who called a meeting at um, Info and told all of us what had happened. And it was just the most bizarre experience and I can't imagine what it was like being in the city during it. You know, whenever I see Peggy, she always tells me that whenever it's 9-11, she thinks of me because um, my dad worked in the city and I had been unable to get in touch with him. Um, he, he did not he did not die that day Uh, but still um, it was just this really weird time you would go someplace that day and like you like would see these people just kind of living their lives or like you know when I when things did happen like people started coming into the cafe and acting like nothing had happened and they're just like give me my cappuccino and it's like like really um, and I think like one of the things about the characters, Faye and Bell. Bell, you know, they kind of have that that weird dissonance, you know, like they're in the middle of it and the two of them are drifters in their own way. Um, and in the wake of this, they drift together. Um, and you know, their friendship you do such a good job of capturing that high school intense friendship that loners have where they're friends with this person and it's like, this is it. You meld together. I believe they call themselves, I believe was it the, the um, F and N unit, Um, you know, and everything is a big joke. Everything is a big in joke. Everybody's funny to them. But then, you know, because I think a a lot of times, you know, you're you're really figuring yourself out, whether you are awkward or queer or, you know, like in the closet about it or just in general, like a teenager, there does always seem to be a big blowout and something that intense. And, you know, this type of um, book surrounding toxic friendships or, um, you know, these really intense situations that blow up, are definitely like one of my niche jams they're just really interesting to read about so I guess like I kind of wanted to know how you sort of intertwined their stories and you know what like starting their friendship at that period in time how um the plot sort of spiraled from there Oh, that is
2: such an interesting question.
1: I think I have a two-part answer. Part
2: one is, I think it's a little hard to remember this now because 9-11 was such a long time ago, but god, it's I'm about to say something as corny as 9-11 changed everything, but one of the ways that 9-11 changed everything was, I'm sure you actually do remember it, just this big surge of public patriotism and suddenly American flags were everywhere and I think some of them never went away. So it's actually hard to remember that there used to not be American flags everywhere. And then overnight, just everywhere you saw. Luckily, I was at a private religious school, so we did not have to do the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, but uh, everyone in public school did. My brother was in a public school and he did not have to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. And then suddenly overnight he did. And he was really weirded out. And uh, I remember being in a... What's it called like a yahoo email group a listserv for people i'd gone to summer camp with and they were from all over the country so even within this yahoo listserv for teenagers there was suddenly like a shift in tone where some of the campers from red states were like we can't say anything bad about the president we just simply must support the president right now and those of us who were closer to new york and from blue states were like well hang on a minute and Even, like, it was sort of a microcosm of what was happening with adults all over the country. So I think, uh, obviously, if you were a teenager, but not just if you were a teenager, if you were any kind of independent thinking person, it was very hard not to bristle at this just national pressure to be serious and somber and respectful and patriotic. And that is, apart from anything else, just such a good, uh, such a good premise for a novel, such a good, headspace to set a novel in, this uh, chafing, this resentment against the pressure to be serious. And I mean, I think so many teenagers feel that way anyway. And especially I think in the early 2000s, the, the fad, the style uh, was to be very nihilistic and very sarcastic and very random. Random humor was big back then. I do think teenagers now are a little more earnest than they used to be. That's just something I've anecdotally observed. But at least when I was a teenager, it was all about being sarcastic, being obnoxious, being... And maybe this is still true, I don't know. Uh, so that was definitely informing the personalities and interactions of the characters. But I also love what you say about the the toxicity of the friendship and uh, how novels about friendships like that are your jam. And he reminded me that when I started working on the novel, I set some rules for myself. And I think some of these rules I ended up violating a little bit, but it was useful to operate under these rules while I was working. And those rules included, I didn't want any of the characters to kiss or have sex with each other. And I didn't want any of the characters to drink and do drugs. Not because I'm a prude or a spoilsport, uh, far from it. But I have just found that often in novels about high school, sex and drugs and alcohol are used to sort of artificially inject drama and excitement into a situation in a way that doesn't feel true to the high school experience. And so the challenge I set for myself working on it was I really want the friendship to be interesting enough that it will sustain the novel without sex or drugs. If you're listening and this sounds like a deal breaker to you, I do want to say the novel is sexier than I'm making it sound right now. But I think that it's easy to forget how one's high school experience is, for most of us, even if we do have sex or do drugs in high school, that's not really what high school is about for us. High school is about yearning and it's about complicated friendships and trying to figure out what other people think about you and trying to figure out what you think about yourself and... I really do think that these things are what we remember about high school and what makes us who we are after high school. And I do think it's interesting enough to sustain a novel on its own. I also think this is um, especially absent a lot of the time from novels about queer adolescence. Uh, I enjoy a lot of novels about queer adolescence, but they are so often, I might use the word teleological about hooking up. They are so driven toward a romantic ending, or they're very focused on uh, queer characters getting together and dating each other. And so one of the challenges I set for myself was, I want to portray what queer adolescence is like if you're not lucky enough to uh, end up in a same sex relationship at the end of it. This isn't just novels, I see this on TV too. Like obviously everyone loves romance. I love romance, I am reading romance right now, but uh, this was the challenge I set for myself. And that is my answer to uh,
1: how I approach
2: the friendship, writing about it.
1: So I want to actually ask, um, you know, because you did kind of touch on a bunch of different things. First of all, um, I, I, do, I do like that. Um, you know, I think like, so I've heard a lot of different narrative about that. And, you know, I know like back in the day when any story would be a queer story, the couple would always be punished. Be it, you know, one would die. Or, you know, they would be ripped apart horribly. And I know there's, you know, and there's been like a real drive towards, um, you know, remedying that. And that's great, because, you know, everybody wants to see a happy ending for somebody like them. But I, obviously, in the context of this story, it would, you know, it, it would not have Run true, um, and you know, unfortunately, especially. I mean, you know, I can't say especially back then. I mean, because I feel like you know, as much progress as there was, there also wasn't, and even now, depending on your life and where you are, it, it might still be that way. But for um, for Nell and uh, Faye's story, absolutely. Um, this rang very true. But I I do. So you mentioned the story being sexier um, than that. Um, Two things I kind of want to pick up on. First of all, yeah, I get it. And, you know, like growing up in the era of John Hughes movies and like American Pie and all these movies where everybody's having sex and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is the teenage experience and then other people are just like, Where? When? Wow, you know um, one thing that always what there's two pieces of media that I think about one is freaks and geeks where um, the characters you know obviously like Daniel is having sex with everybody because that's kind of his character but like you know you have like characters like Nick and Lindsay who are so awkward and like the younger brother and like they're not like they 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 have these crushes but then like when it comes right down to it it's like "Eh, no this isn't happening but then also Daria which um, I am like a huge fan of Daria. Oh my God, if I can just interject, me
2: too. Side note, Daria was one of my influences and inspirations actually, I love Daria.
1: Wonderful, so what I'm gonna say is, um, so I have watched and like used used to at one point in my life, I blogged about every episode of Daria because my husband and I are like, we're just gonna rewatch this. Um, But one thing I really thought was interesting, now, first of all, like I am not a fan of Daria's boyfriend, I just think he was kind of a bland character but one thing I really liked about their arc was there was this whole build-up to are they going to have sex and they didn't and it was okay and it was like you know like they got to this moment and then she kind of like was like at the last minute just kind of left and was like no but it was so natural to the teenage (laughs) experience it's like yeah that's and that's okay that's totally okay and he wasn't that much of a jerk about it I just don't like his character but um, what I did but getting back to your story which also deals with pop culture is Faye is really into slash fan fiction, and um, this is before I don't know if this is before fanfiction.net I think that there was fanfiction.net definitely before it's definitely pre AO3 um, and pre like Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock because she reads like Sherlock Holmes slash fiction so if that's the sexy part of the story, can, uh, t- talk a little bit to that. Like, why slash fiction? And what is oh. slash fiction for people who don't know? Because you should. <laughs> Gosh, I feel like
2: every time there's like a little explainer about slash fiction in an article, they always have to explain the etymology of the word slash fiction. So like a, like a little article explainer, I will say that slash fiction is... Fan fiction specifically uh imagining that two male characters on a TV show or in a novel get together sexually. And it's it is so-called because of the slash mark used to uh used to denote the pairing. So for example, if you write slash fiction about Sherlock Holmes and Watson, you would Denote it as Holmes slash Watson. This is what all the art article explainers say. And I feel like it's become such a, a trope to explain it this way that we have really lost sight of the fact that nobody calls it slash fiction anymore. Like, honestly, we are old to still be calling it slash fiction. And actually, it's kind of interesting. I eventually realized I think there's two reasons that term has fallen out of favor. One is so much fan fiction is gay now that it kind of is beside the point to specify whether it's slash or het. Like, we don't make that distinction any, anymore. But actually, the other reason is, as librarians, I think you guys will be interested in this reason, the other reason we don't call it slash anymore is that on Tumblr, which displaced LiveJournal as the hub for fan fiction, if you put a slash mark in the hashtags, it would mess up the hashtags and they wouldn't show up in a search. It was like, you couldn't use that character in the tags. So, uh, To take an example, uh, let's say uh, Sirius, Black, and Remus Lupin, a very popular slash pairing. If you put a slash between their names in a Tumblr tag, they would not show up in the search. And that is why you'll notice when Tumblr started during the ascent of Tumblr as the big fandom hub, uh, that is when you started seeing stupid, cutesy little made-up names for slash pairings. And for uh, Sirius, Black, and Remus Lupin, you may recall that name was Wolfstar.
1: Uh, oh, all- I, I thought you were going to say, like, like. oh, no, wait, that doesn't, I was going to say Rearious, but that's terrible. <laughs> or like, or, <laughs> sloop in, Sloop in, that works a little bit yeah. better, that flows.
2: <laughs> you all, you did start seeing a lot of portmanteau names, like Drarry, and I, uh, you know, you can, if you're listening to this podcast, you can probably think of more, honestly. Like, I don't think there are a lot of listeners to whom this is news. Uh, but this is all to say that I realized as I was working on my novel that I, I was really, I had to, one of the ways I had to put myself in that 2002 headspace was I really had to remember and reimagine an entirely different internet. And uh, one of the, so as you say, fanfiction.net existed. AO3 definitely did not exist. I also, it was amazing how much I had forgotten and had to refamiliarize myself with as I was writing it. I had totally forgotten gotten that you couldn't put you were not allowed to put explicit content on fanfiction.net you could only they had inspired by the MPAA rating system I think you could only go up to an R rating and then anything rated NC17 was relegated to adult fanfiction.net but also the internet was more um What's the word? It was oh, I'm forgetting the word. But it was more scattered at the time, so it wasn't AO3 or Tumblr dominating everything. It was you had like special websites just for Harry Potter fan fiction, special websites just for fan fiction about Sirius Black and Remus Lupin. Balkanized. Um, that's the word I'm looking for. The internet was more balkanized back then, and fandom was more balkanized back then, and LiveJournal was probably an even bigger fandom hub than fanfiction.net, but LiveJournal itself was so balkanized. You had LiveJournal communities, and unfortunately, I just didn't have it in me to recreate all of this in my novel. That would have been too big a project for me. It would have been a different project. So uh, actually, a small regret I have is that the portrayal of LiveJournal in my novel is a little bit oversimplified. I don't have the characters making friends on LiveJournal, and I don't have them meeting strangers in other parts of the world in live journal communities even though realistically I think they would have been but uh I I just didn't have it in me to come up with all that stuff so instead I uh I focused only on uh just the way that uh fan fiction and slash fiction uh was a way to uh get a fix of something that was really hard to find in pop culture back then I wanted to say too on that note 2002 and 2003 was an interesting time for gay culture because it was out there. You know, Ellen DeGeneres had come out on her sitcom. We had on Friends, you know, there were lesbian characters on Friends. So like, and there was a gay pride parade in many major cities. So like, it was not a completely hidden closeted thing, but you did have to hunt for it. And you would never, ever see gay content in media for children, which I think was a very interesting uh time to grow up in. Because if you were interested in gay stuff and attuned to gay stuff, uh, you really, you had to look for it. You had to know what to look for. You had to hunt. It was maybe in a sort of hidden section of the library. My own school library had like four gay books and the section was not on prominent display. But man, when I found it, I tore through it. I read all four books. I I read Ruby Fruit Jungle, which my school library weirdly had. And I read a biography of Ryan White and I read a surprisingly informative book called When Someone You Know Is Gay. I read all those in the eighth grade. I think that was it, that was the entire gay section. Uh, so Faye and Nell are characters, they are characters who are just constantly like snipping around for the gay section. And you know, since the amount of gay books and gay content out there is so limited, they are obsessed with looking for it in, in subtext. And so this is all to say, and slash fiction is part of this too, I think the experience of sniffing out uh, gay stuff during that time period is so uh, characterized by the experience of looking for subtext. And actually, I guess you could say the novel is a novel about looking for subtext. And in that sense, maybe it's uh, a universal gay story, but I think it is really situated in that time period of the early 2000s when gay stuff was there but largely subtext
0: I'm uh overall I was really fascinated and very impressed by like the role that fan fiction plays in the story and indeed like media in general I think because it really captures the way in which like media can be like a a mirror in which you see yourself before you are ready to sort of like acknowledge who you are on your own terms. And it's sort of like you, you get those like really kind of almost sacred relationships to like foundational texts who like tell you something, a little something about who you are. And I say that because I see a velvet goldmine poster behind you. And that movie was everything to me in high school. Like that was like, I remember being like 16 and I'm like, why is this movie so important to me? And then I was like at 21, I was like, Oh, (laughs)
2: like <laughs> so <laughs> you know I just want to say this is where I do all my zoom meetings including tutoring children sometimes you are the first person who has ever noticed the the gold mine poster behind me and now I'm a little self-conscious because it is a crotch shot but like in a subtle way like I don't know if you could tell it's like a close-up of a guy yeah. in underpants so I'm wondering if I need to come up with a new zoom background now but thank you my whole life has been leading up to this moment of you sir
1: you also uh talk you know another thing that made me laugh um and and I am I am a I certainly was a fan and uh I have to go back and watch but I'm a cheerleader again but um you know uh your your comment about um when they talk about that movie being like uh, you know like the movie that every lesbian has to say that they like I thought that that was very funny <laughs> You know, I think that is going
2: to end up being the most controversial line in the entire novel. I have already had friends get mad at me for that line. And truth be told, I have always been cranky about But I'm a cheerleader, and I am positive at this point. It's my own issues and not the movie's fault. And I bet if I revisited it now, I would think it was charming. So I apologize to anyone I may have offended with my character's uh cranky remarks about what no, I I
1: think to, be, to be honest I think I think it makes sense I just still you know it's like yeah okay fair, fair enough was really more my um my reaction uh you know and it is very it is very cam and it is very very silly and you know I I kind of felt like that was like I, I felt like almost like when you watch like um like a John Waters movie like to me it felt like that was the point and if you're not really into that camp and that silly and the bright colors you know it's actually interesting you say that because i'm realizing that what
2: bothered me when i saw it as a teen was not the camp and the bright colors but the sentimentality and it ties into what i was just talking about about yeah. how in during that time period teens were so suspicious of sentimentality and so that really oh god the the love scene with the soft guitar music and they're like under that pink blanket and then Oh my god, the ending when she does the cheater with the
1: stupid! <laughs> oh, that was that was that was cr- that was cringe, as they would say on Tumblr now. That was a hundred and ten percent cringe. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it, for me, I was I was also just very thrilled to see Dante Bosco acting
0: again. Like I was like Rufio, yay, welcome back. Speaking of of cringe, that's actually like a really perfect segue. Um, that to hit on something that you mentioned before. Um, this is like a perfect a perfect anthropological portrait of like theater kids in this time period. Cause I was a theater kid too. And like the thing that you said about like um, not needing drugs or sex in order to inflate the stakes. I'm like, yeah, cause they're theater kids. Like that's why they they're bringing all their own drama already. So was that like a milieu that you were also in? And like, was that like, did you base that on firsthand experience?
2: Oh, absolutely. I was the biggest theater kid in the whole world. I mean, it's, it's beyond, uh, what I did in high school. It's who I am. It's still, it's still such a big part of me. It's, I used to joke that my true gender was theater kid. And I made that joke back before I like fully came out as trans. And now I don't say that anymore because that is not what my gender is now. But, uh, it's funny how being a theater kid just like stays with you the rest of your life. And for better or for worse, former theater kids do sniff each other out in public and we make each other so annoying. Like to this day, we can like, we like, I will meet some random person and it will emerge that we were both theater kids in high school. And like, we shift into a different mode. We code switch into the most annoying mode that we have available to us. And uh, we compare notes on our, on our performances and oh my God, the grudges that theater kids continue to carry into their eldest ancient years about the roles that they should have gotten, but didn't get. It's just amazing how nothing will ever be as emotionally intense as our relationship to the show as we did in high school. Even if we do theater later in life, it'll never be the same as being a theater kid.
0: (laughs) I just remember so many like parties Uh, with the theater kids like I would leave the room for one second to like use the restroom and I come back and like everybody has arranged the chairs in a circle and they're all talking about their feelings because like some some conflict like came to light you know while I was gone for four seconds and I just like oh gosh like this (laughs) so yeah it's just a a really wonderful portrait of that it's like extraordinarily evocative (laughs)
2: That means so much to me. I actually personally think the greatest portrait of theater kids that has ever been made is the Saturday Night Live digital short Crucible Cash Party. Have you seen this? Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's like I actually felt almost wounded by it. It felt so real and so recognizable to me. God, that line, that lyric. I wanna flirt, but I don't know how. So I just feel this guy's hat off his head and just sort of walk around. made me feel like, oh oh my God, like you gave away my move. Don't tell people that.
1: I just like, first of all, I just wanna know what you're working on after this. And I also, I'm gonna watch that digital short the minute we're done with this recording <laughs> because I don't know how I missed it.
2: Oh my God, I'm gonna watch it too, just so we, so we can watch it together after this is over. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, Are you working on anything new? Do you have like the next novel in the pipeline or? You know, I am happy to say that
2: I have just started a new project, but it is so nascent that there's really very little to say about it. What's been so difficult is Idlewild is such a big novel and I put so much of myself in it that for, God, years after I, like fully years after I finished the final draft, I have felt depleted. I felt like I have written down everything I know. And I don't actually have any more to say, especially, like I thought that this was because I transitioned, but then I talked to my friend, Sarah Thancom Matthews, whose wonderful book, All This Could Be Different, I highly recommend. And she finished hers around the same time I finished mine. Uh, she did not transition. So she told me, no, I actually feel exactly the same way having finished my book. It's not because you're trans. It's just because you finished the novel. But I do think that um, transitioning adds an extra layer of this where suddenly I am in this new stage of my life where I am receptive. I am learning. I am picking up all these new rules. I'm meeting new people and just like getting my sea legs socially and trying to figure out you know uh how do i be cute what does it mean to be cute what do i you know, what's the faux what would be a faux pas what would be a charming thing to do and i am so deep in the midst of learning all this that i don't feel qualified to write anything down but i felt this way for a couple of years now and i am starting to feel like i have observed enough that i can start to play with writing things down and I actually just started writing page one yesterday and I realized like I have not started a new project in years, I forgot how this feels. So it's going to be a challenge to get out of like revising mode and editing mode and into just like have fun, just play, don't worry about being bad. I'm excited to get back into that mindset, but it's going to be an adjustment because it has been all wild for six years.
0: I bet. Well, yeah, enjoy. I hope you've enjoyed that uh, well-earned rest and, you know, Godspeed on the next project. I hope that you'll consider coming back and talking uh, to us about that one too, you know, in time, no rush, you know. (laughs) I,
2: I am, oh my God, I'm so slow. I am the slowest writer. That's why Idlewild took five years. I am hoping, you know, fingers crossed that I'll be faster this time, but that was one thing they did not teach me at Iowa was how to write faster. It turns out some people are just slow and I think I might be one of the slow people and that's okay. I got to accept that about myself.
1: Yeah, that's okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really lovely. We appreciate it. Yeah, it it really, (laughs) really has. Thank you so much. This was just super, super fun. And uh, I think um, this is just a really good book. Everyone should read it. It's good.
2: That means so much to me. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. All right. Okay,
0: listeners, please pick up Idlewild. By the time that you hear this episode, it will have been out in the world for a couple days. So please pick it up at your uh, favorite library or bookstore, wherever you like to go for those things. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter.